Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast, where I chat with peak performing individuals about their why, how, their challenges and vulnerabilities, as well as their strategies and tactics. I believe these individuals will empower you to find small ways every single day to create a positive impact for you and your community. I am your host, Samantha Gash. I'm a former corporate lawyer turned endurance athlete, international keynote speaker, and social impact entrepreneur. I hope that you enjoy. Motivation versus inspiration. And he said, motivation is when you're motivated to make something happen and you're pushing, pushing, pushing to make something happen. And it's hard work and you're pushing. But inspiration is when you actually sit still and wait for the spirit of what inspires you to pull you forward. And so I do that a lot. Like I actually sit with ideas and I wait to see if they're going to pull me forth, if they're going to pull me towards them. And that is Jennifer Steinman. She is this award-winning filmmaker with over 20 years experience in television and filmmaking. She's established herself professionally as a creative storyteller with an incredible sense of pacing, timing, and the unique ability to tap into the hearts and emotion of a story. Jen not only directs, but she produces and edits her own films, which makes her a master of many trades. She's definitely driven to create films with a female protagonist, and she happens to be the filmmaker of Desert Runners, which is a documentary which I happen to be a feature character of alongside three others. For those who don't know the film Desert Runners, I do want to give you a synopsis because whilst we speak about the film, we speak a lot more about it from the perspective of the filmmaker and Jennifer's story as opposed to the story arcs of each character, which I think is pretty relevant considering I'm interviewing Jen, not the characters. And so here it goes. Desert Runners is about a group of diverse non-professional runners of various ages as they attempt to complete the most difficult ultramarathon race series on the planet. Their dramatic journey takes them across the world's most picturesque yet brutal landscapes, pushing their bodies, hearts and spirits through a mirage of external and internal obstacles. Desert Runners delves into the mindset of ultra-athletes and the complex ways in which human beings deal with both heartbreak and triumph. And I want you to imagine this. You've been dropped off in the middle of one of the largest, driest deserts on earth. And over the next six days, you've been asked to run, jog, walk, crawl 250 kilometres or 155 miles through this incessant heat over sand dunes, multiple stories high, going down razor-sharp rocky cliffs, and you have got to do this, carrying everything you need to survive, clothes, food, emergency, medical supplies, sleeping bags, in a pack on your back. And you know what? You're not just doing it once. You're going to do it four times in one year. And they're going to be through the four most treacherous deserts in the Atacama Desert in Chile, the Gobi Desert in China, the Sahara Desert in Egypt, and then a gruelling foot race across the single most inhospitable landscape in the world, Antarctica. So that is what Desert Runners is really about. 
Jennifer Steinman hasn't just been the filmmaker of Desert Runners. She's done multiple other films, including Motherland, which I highly recommend um, you download. And Jen has been so kind to give us a code um, to watch both of those films via her website and, and all of those details will be on the show notes for this episode. I've got to say it was challenging for me in moment interviewing Jen and not being one of her subjects and kind of being drawn into the fact that she is someone who chooses to get a story out of you. We do go into um, a very personal incident that happened uh, for me in the Sahara Desert, something that I typically avoid answering in podcasts where I'm interviewed, but I definitely saw it as an opportunity from getting her perspective on it, that the lens of a filmmaker. Jen not only is a filmmaker, but she's also a mother and her journey through motherhood is definitely interesting, but the challenges that she faced, well, she certainly wouldn't be alone in this. And I appreciate in the final, you know, 15, 20 minutes of this podcast, we really talk about some home truths, the challenge that women face uh, as mothers, you know, particularly when you come from having these high-flying or so you think high-flying careers beforehand. I hope you enjoy this podcast. There are definitely some themes that parallel along the lines of what Beck spoke about last week and the feedback for that podcast was incredible. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast for the previous episodes. I appreciate your feedback and I guess without further ado, I would like to welcome you to Jen Steinman. Well, welcome to the podcast, Miss Jen Steinman. I have to remind you that it's been a decade since we first met in the Atacama wow. Desert in Chile. Did you realize it was a decade? I did actually realize recently that it was the, yeah. Oh, I mean, it really was. It's almost exactly a decade because it's yep. it was in March, right, of 2010. Yeah, March 2010. We both found ourselves uh, in the Atacama Desert in Chile after there was an earthquake in Concepcion in the south of Chile. And I think we both had pretty hectic travel itineraries just to get into Chile. And we were embarking on what was, or what we later discovered was going to be an entire year, 1,000 kilometre crossing across the hottest, coldest, driest and windiest deserts on earth. I remember meeting you and I remember my cameraman going, who's that really cute Australian? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember, um, so we were in, we, we, it was like the first night we had gotten there and we were going, we wanted to go to dinner in town and there was like only one small shuttle bus. So we all had to like cram in it to get, to get to town or was it a taxi, something like that. And we all crammed in it and it was me and my cameraman and Dave who was the one person who we thought we had come there to film. Um, and then you were there and your boyfriend at the time. And who, do you remember who else was in the car? No, I think, it, oh, I mean, there's probably some other people at the time, but I do remember we were crammed because you were sitting on Dave's lap and Savan was in the front seat and every now and again he'd turn the camera around. But, um, yeah, I, I very much remember that conversation because I could see in your face this look of panic when Dave told you that he hadn't trained very much. Do you remember that? Yeah. It's like the, it was like the turning point moment in my entire like making of desert runners, because we had, we had come there to film Dave, but the working title of the film was Dave in the desert. And it was, <laughs> I like the alliteration was, there. 
yeah, it was Dave in the desert, and it was going to be entirely following the story of this one man, Dave O'Brien, as he and we had filmed him in Ireland already training, and then we had followed him to the first desert. We hadn't seen him in like the two or three months since we had been filming with him in Ireland, and then we got to the Atacama Desert for the first race, and we get there, and I guess, and so it was in that van with you, who were you were a stranger at the time. Um, and he said that he hadn't trained at all. And I, I remember panicking. Like I remember going, Oh my God, we flew all the way to Chile to film this guy in a seven day ultra marathon race. And he's going to be out in the first seven minutes. And what are we going to (laughs) do? We have no, we like, we came here to make a movie and he's going to be like out. Yeah. That's hilarious that you were there when that happened. So hilarious. I know. I mean, we didn't know each other, so I think we were all just kind of sharing a ride and it just so happened that our paths interwoven many times that year and really over the past decade we have travelled to like a lot of places on this planet together. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you obviously were making this film about Dave, how did you even first come into contact with Dave and hear about the story of the Four Deserts Grand Slam? I was at a health and nutrition conference about six months before that. And Dave was one of the speakers at the event. And he's a very um, funny, charismatic, you know, bouncy guy. And he um, and he was a speaker at this event, which was probably at least 5,000 people in the audience. And he had the whole audience, you know, laughing and, you know, in stitches and, and entertained And I remember sitting in the front row and thinking, wow, this guy's a great character. And then he, um, and then he started talking about this one ultra marathon that he had done 10 years earlier in his forties. The marathon to Saab, um, which is also the race, another race through the Sahara. And it was like a gruesome story about this insane ultra marathon. And, and I think that ultra marathons are very well known now, but 10 years ago, Um, they weren't. It was a very small niche thing that not very many people knew about at all. I I had never heard about a race like that before. I I think the longest race I had ever heard of was maybe 35 miles, period. Um, So this idea of these like multi-day stage races, you know, 250 kilometers basically in five days um, was like insanity to me. Um, And then and and to basically everybody in the audience. I mean, people were shocked just hearing about it. Um, and then at the very end of his talk, he announced, so he had done that one race 10 years earlier, and then he announces on stage, so I've decided that this year, instead of just doing one of those races, I'm going to do four of them through the four roughest deserts in the world, the hottest, the coldest, the driest, and the windiest. Um it's this race series called the four desert ultra marathon series. And only two people in the entire world have ever done it before in one year. And which was last year. And they both are professional runners, but I've decided that I want to (laughs) try. And he's like, he's this 56 year old man. I mean, not particularly athletic looking. Um, And I just remember thinking, Oh my God that is going to be a story. And I, and I just instantly went up to him right after the talk. And I said, you know, have you thought at all about what you're going to do about filming what you're going to do next year? 
Um, and he said, no, but I'd love to, let's talk. And <laughs> literally two months later, my, uh, my friend Savan, who was my cameraman and I were on a plane to Ireland and we started filming him and the rest is history. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's so much into that because when you're watching this guy speak on a stage that you have never met before and like to give some context, Dave's this wiry, flighty, like he can't sit still, like he kind of frolics on a stage when he presents. I mean, I've seen him do his thing on stage. What are you, like obviously the story is going to be huge, but what is it about Dave that you're like, this is a character? Um, I think as a filmmaker, I'm always looking for, um, I'm always looking for characters in everyday life. And, and I love telling stories about real people. So I always want real people characters, but I think that, um, for, to make a, a good film, you really need people who care and, you know, people who are really open and honest and authentic, you know, and I think some people are like good performers, but that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that they're good, they're authentic characters, you know, and, and Dave is someone who is very, um, you know, he's funny and he's goofy and he's entertaining, but he's also very real. And he also tells the truth and he, and he's very, he wears his heart on his sleeve, you know, and I think those are all really important things. Um, when you're looking for a documentary character is like, you want someone who's going to really open up and, and let people in. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, running films. I mean, there were a couple of running films back then. And I, but I think they were more around a professional style ultra runner or marathon runner. But I think nowadays we're seeing a lot more films about everyday people tackling the extraordinary. Um, and I think some films that I, I guess get great traction are exactly what you've just said. Like you can really feel for that person because what they're giving you is exactly who they are. There's not this perfect mm -hmm. answer, perfect analysis on who they are. I think we are drawn to people who are discovering themselves but are willing to share the discovery along the way. Yeah, and I was really fascinated by, um, I mean, you're right, really the only film that was around back then before Desert Runners was um, running the Sahara that yeah. – um, that your friend that your friend Ray Zahab was in, um, and but all three of the guys in that film were professional runners, and so I was I, I mean, of course I immediately watched it. It's a fantastic film, but I was also like, okay, but the like these people are not professional runners, and what makes them think they can do this? And and I was really, um, you know, I always tell the story that you know when I had when I saw Dave speak, um, my mom was really sick at that time. And she had just been in the hospital for like a month and she was just home, but she was, she was in poor health in general. And, um, she, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, my mom doesn't even think she can walk around the block. Why does this guy think he can run a thousand kilometers through the desert? And, and what's that all about? Like, what's, what is, what makes someone think something is possible that other people would say is impossible. And you know, I talk about this all the time with you and the things you do. It's like, what makes you think you can do that? <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's just, it's very, and so, so many people wouldn't even have that on their list of anything that would be remotely possible for them in this lifetime. And yet some people 
have that on their list of things that they think are possible. And I, and I just think that's really interesting. Like, um, how each of us as human beings has different perceived limitations and perceived possibilities and, and kind of what I was really drawn to like the idea of what, what makes all that happen and what makes different people tick in those different ways. Yeah. So you're definitely a filmmaker that's drawn to the human story, not the professional athlete, which is fortunate because the four people that the film focuses on were very much every day, I think highly relatable to their subset of you know person who might watch it so you have you know Dave who's you know the older Irish guy you've got Ricky who's an American uh, who lives in the UK and he's a consultant but he's a prior professional baseball player but hasn't done much sport in recent years and then you've got beautiful Tremaine who's ex-army who had recently lost his wife and you have myself who it's hard for me to describe myself but I think I was probably the naive you know 20 something year old law student who's really just trying to find something more in life than just the conventional path of professionalism and Mm -hmm. there was obviously a lot of other people that you filmed over that year but I want to backtrack a little bit because what I want to understand is you watch a guy on stage, you hear a story, and within a, in a number of months, you find yourself in the Atacama Desert. And for me, like that's a really short period of time to take quite a leap in potentially creating your next, you know, feature film. And I, I want to understand from your perspective, like what does it take for you to go? I'm just going to throw everything of you know finance and my time and my commitment, and I'm going to go on the other side of the planet and create a film when I don't know what it's going to look like how do you how do you get that leap of faith beyond just feeling like that this guy is a good character so for me that's that's a really deep question um because I feel like feel like it took me a long time to sort of learn this about myself and the world and life and the way life works But what I have really found is that, and not to use too many cliches, but there are things that feel like pushing a boulder up a hill. And then there are things where you're in the flow and you can feel the difference. And it's, for me, it's very obvious. There have been projects, ideas I've had in the past where I have a great idea and I'm like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? And then like nothing happens or I try to make something happen and I hit dead end after dead end after dead end. And I know now well enough to know, like, it's not supposed to happen right now. Like, don't push. And then there's other things that happen. And it's, you know, I knock on a door and it opens and it opens wide. And then inside, that's another door that opens even wider. And the next thing I know, it's like a snowball effect. And, you know, and then three months later, I'm in a desert. (laughs) So it's like, I've you know, I've, um, I've come to really like, see... And, and, and pay attention and tune into the flow and where is the flow happening and what's ha- what's happening with ease versus what's happening with struggle. Um, and I really try to, one of the, one of my favorite quotes, and of course I'm going to mess it up, but it was, it's, or not even a quote, but just an idea. Um, I remember reading way back then actually from, was from this Wayne Dyer book. And he talked about the idea of motivation versus inspiration And he said, motivation is when you're motivated to make something happen and you're pushing, pushing, pushing to make something happen. And it's hard work and you're pushing. But inspiration is when you actually sit still 
and wait for the spirit of what inspires you to pull you forward. And so I do that a lot. Like I actually sit with ideas and I wait to see if they're going to pull me forth, if they're going to pull me towards them. And, um, and every single time the ones that pull me forward are the ones that happen. They happen with ease. The money shows up, the people show up, the, you know, the characters show up, (laughs) you know, the, the, um, like things, the flow happens and then you're in the flow and it's such a different feeling than when you're trying to make something happen where you feel like you're just banging your head up against a wall over and over and over and it's not happening. It's not happening. And you're frustrated and you're blaming yourself and you're feeling insecure and shitty and all of those feelings from the, the pushing the boulder up the hill feeling. And so every, I mean, just every time I find myself in that spot, I know that the only thing I can do is stop, just stop, like accept that for whatever reason, that project doesn't want to happen right now. And, and I need to turn my attention towards things that do want to happen right now. And a lot of times that's hard and sad to let go of something or, or to put something on the back burner or make it wait. Um, but I just tell myself if it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. And I, and I know that from experience because desert runners was one of those films where it was like idea, then crew showed up, then money showed up, then plane tickets showed up. <laughs> then, <laughs> and then we were in the desert and then, and then our characters showed up and then more characters showed up. And it was just like, that whole year was so magical because everything just unfolded so organically and beautifully and naturally that at all times I was like, I'm meant to be here right now and I'm meant to be doing this. Like there was never really a time in that whole year where it was like, we're not supposed to be here, you know? It's hugely relevant what you just say and I can't help but think to the things that were going on in my life in, you know, 2020. And there was a couple of projects that I was fighting so hard to create and I was having you know the boulder after boulder after boulder being presented and I was like literally pushing them like and I remember Mark at one point was saying maybe this is just not meant to happen now then I managed to kind of make a few leaps and bounds in it and then COVID-19 happened and I'm like okay so it's really not meant to happen now Um, (laughs) and so I think that is so relevant but I do have to ask you I think in your early years um, as a filmmaker or as a it really is as trying to make your way in the space in anything there is resistance I believe and I think sometimes you do have to push and make your way and you have to fight hard for what you really want do you think that ease now comes because you've you've proven yourself in a certain point so you don't have to prove credibility it's the flow can be the focus now for you because you're at a certain stage of your career I think what you're asking though, I think, and I, I feel like I, I can say this cause I know you, I, I think what you're <laughs> defining is as, as fighting hard is actually being courageous and taking risks, which I don't necessarily think is the same thing. Like, like working hard and pushing a boulder up a hill is a different thing than like coming to the edge of a cliff and having like the courage to jump off it without knowing what's going to happen next. Like, Mm -hmm. which is hard. And you do have to do that a lot at the beginning of your your career. And I think that's what you've done a lot. Um, But I don't ever think of like, I think the things that you're calling, like I had to fight hard for, like, I don't think you really had to fight that hard for them. 
I think you just had to, um, I think, I think you just had to be willing to step out on a limb and take risks that maybe other people didn't want you to take or, you know, and, and I say you, but I actually think this is true for all of us. Like I, I think it's more about, um, I think one of the hardest things in life and especially for women is letting ourselves have permission to do the things we really want to do, um, regardless of what other people think we should be doing. Um, and I think that, um, I think that's hard (laughs) and I think that is hard work. Yeah. I think you're so dead on with that one because even with the desert runners, I initially only ever signed up to do the first race, which was 250 kilometers in the Atacama desert. And after I finished that experience, which I thought was like this bucket list item, tick, it's done, move on to like the other aspects of my life, meaning (laughs) time to be a lawyer now, that that experience is transformational for me. And I couldn't help but want to go back and explore more parts of myself. And that's when I had the idea of doing the Grand Slam, which is when I called you. I remember I was doing a um, three-month internship in Houston at the time working for a capital defence office and I remember exactly where I was when I made that phone call to you going, hey, like, I know you're making a film about Dave and I just want to let you know that I'm thinking of doing all four deserts (laughs) and, hey, I'm going to be there. (laughs) And I remember you going, yeah, cool, I'll film you. And it was... For me, it was just I needed a few. Um, I needed a few more green flashing lights that it was the right decision, um, because in my personal life I was not getting any green flashing lights. I remember telling my boyfriend at the time that I was going to do it, and he, he couldn't have been less supportive of the idea of it. You know, I told my parents, and there was fear from them because what I was trying to do was so beyond their comprehension that they were nervous about my own safety. And then my university, of course, like the normal you know, uni year doesn't structure for you to leave to four different continents (laughs) over the year. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of things in my normal life that didn't permit doing something like this. So I had to seek other versions of green lights to give me the confidence that it was worth going. And you were one of my lifelines, um, whether you know it or not. And so I definitely took so much out of that four deserts year about myself. But what did you take out of that year by watching you know, a bunch of people running, pushing themselves, and you were literally running. I mean, you you had one other cameraman, you had a, you know, a flip camera, and you were running across <laughs> the desert, you know, chasing runners. Um, what was that experience like for you? <laughs> well, I definitely had a couple moments where I was like, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was excruciatingly hard at times. And it was also a monumental adventure. And it was, um, it was so fun. And it was so inspiring. And, and I think anytime, I mean, I know for me, like the way I know when I'm in my passion is when I'm not looking at my watch, I'm not looking at anything, like I'm just like, in whatever's happening. And that's how I was for that whole year. I mean, it was so great. I was also not married and did not have a child. I was single. (laughs) I lived alone. Traveling the world was like the best thing in the entire world. I had, you know, it was like I could 
immerse myself completely in that experience. And it was, it, it was a, like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, I mean, in all honesty, everything I said before about why I did desert runners is true, but also I really wanted to go to all those places. Like yeah. the itinerary was pretty awesome. Like I like talk about bucket list experiences. Like we went to Antarctica we went to the yeah. middle of the Sahara desert. We went to, you know, the desert in Chile. We were in the middle of freaking nowhere in China. Like there is no way on earth <laughs> I would ever have gone to any of those places without those races, <laughs> you know? And we, I mean, there were so many times we were like running through some random village in the middle of China in the middle of the night, you know, when a little kid run, runs up to us and pulls us into down an alley. And the next thing we know, he's selling us Coke and candy out of like a cabinet. And I was like, where am I? And what's going on right now? Like, this is so oh, like, where are we? Like, this is so random and amazing. Like, it was just we had, I mean, we had so many experiences like that, right? So it was just I mean, it was life-changing. All of it was. For a second, I was like, oh, my God, like this sounds like it's come out of a movie. And I'm like, well, it kind of is in a movie. <laughs> it's in the film. <laughs> because it, yeah. I, don't, it, I don't know if people who are listening can kind of truly capture, but there's so many moments that make up that year and obviously not all of them can be a part of a film. Um, and some of the ones that are probably deep in our heart forever for the rest of our lives weren't shown. But... You know, there were moments when, as you said, you know, Ricky, who's the American guy who's battling super hard and, like, I know that you played a pivotal role, you and Savan, the cameraman, in sticking by his side because not only were you worried about his safety but you're like, this is like, this is quality character development right now of seeing the strong, probably fittest guy out of the four characters that you followed throughout that year having a physical and emotional breakdown. And the question was, is he going to finish this race or not? And you guys were there for every step of that way. The experience helped me so much as a filmmaker because in in the sense that I really, truly understand, like, the difference in what you get when your characters trust you and you have a real relationship with them. And we all really bonded over the course of the year. And I think that the film got better and better and better over the course of the year. Um, and I know that there's so many things we got because, um, because you all really trusted us. Um, and, and I felt really like, um, I felt, I felt entrusted. Like I felt like the guardian of the story and I felt like I had, um, I owed it to all of you to tell, to like, hold your story with care and I feel like you all almost died out there <laughs> there was like yeah. at least one day at least one or two days where all of you dropped and yeah. you know and we and we were there for it and you know and one of the things that you know one of the things that the race um, organizers the requirements of people being out there filming was that you're not supposed to interfere in the race in any way you know, we did a really good job of trying not to interfere in any way. But I think, you know, there were certainly times where like, you know, like you were saying, there was a night where Ricky was very, very sick and he was lost in the dark in the middle of nowhere. 
and we found him and we had cameras and we had a light and we stayed with him for the next three hours while he wandered around in the dark and tried to find his way. And do I think he would have made it to the next checkpoint without us there? Like, I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely emotional support because we knew you. Like, you get to the the depth of relationships with people and these experiences where you're so beyond your known, they develop and accelerate very quickly. And the way I saw you and Savan is I knew that you were there to tell a story, but it was almost like you were a, a, a source of friendship who was not having to push themselves in the same way that we were. So there's only so much that you can rely on the other people that are running because you know that they're at burden already. And so seeing you guys out mm. there, it was like there's some. it could be a comic relief in moments. It could be um, you could feel like you could have a cry and you could emotionally take it. So it, it did. I do feel you being there without, you know, technically offering support was support for us because you were the one continuation through that entire year when the scenery changes, when the competitors change, when the pressures that we faced were always different as well. You were the constant. Well, the best compliment I ever, ever received as a filmmaker was from Tremaine. And he said to me at the premiere of the film, he said, I have to tell you that I don't think I would have had the experience I had without you guys there. Because he's like, I would have done the races and I would have finished the races, but I don't think I would have really thought about what any of it meant to me or how I, you know, I wouldn't have reflected on any of it. And he's like, you were there the whole time asking me how I was feeling and what I was thinking and forcing me to reflect on it. And he said, if if you hadn't been there, I wouldn't have, I don't even know if I would have thought about it. And I was it like, made me cry. It's going to make me cry now. <laughs> but it was like the, the greatest compliment. And so, and also, you know, and also so great to hear because as a filmmaker, I'm always like, I don't want to interfere in the story. And I, and I don't, you know, and we don't want to insert ourselves in the story. Um, and yet we can't deny that we are a part of the story and we were a part of the experience. So um, and that there is sort of a dance between that, you know? Well, and, and I guess on a personal level, and I I don't really like being asked this um, in podcasts where I'm interviewed, but I, I feel like there's this opportunity to talk about it because uh, in the Sahara Desert, I had my point of, will I finish this race or not? Um, and for those who haven't seen Desert Runners, I really recommend watching it because it's a film that goes well beyond the scope of if you're interested in ultra running. It's a story about just everyday people that you will be able to relate to, pushing themselves in a space and coming up with significant hurdles along the way. And my major hurdle was um, during Egypt where I encountered a um, man on the course who attempted to sexually assault me. And very fortunate for me, um, that situation got stopped by a guy on a, a motorbike who scared, you know, I guess my attacker away. And I continued on in the race with a lot of fear and I was completely on my own. And the first person that I found when I was almost at breaking point was you. And do you remember what that moment was when I came across to your vehicle and I'm waving my poles in the air? Yeah, I remember it so well. 
I remember you coming up to the car and, and just saying, Jen, I'm out, I'm out, Jen, I'm out, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, I'm done. And I was like, it was so not you to be saying that. And I was like, and, and I was like, I was like, you're not out. I'm just going to walk with you. <laughs> and I just remember jumping out and I was like, she just needs company. She just needs someone to walk with her. I was like, let's just walk. We're going to walk and I'll walk you to the next checkpoint. And so I jumped out of the car and I started walking with you. And as we started walking, um, you told me what had just happened. Um, and I just, I don't, I just sort of remember carrying you into the next checkpoint at that point, mm-hmm. you know, as a filmmaker, like, when you're out there, you're also always looking for drama and you know that the more drama you find, the better your movie's going to be. Right. So, um, it was definitely this moment for me of like, should I keep my camera rolling or not? Like, you know, I have like my, you know, the angel and the devil, one on each shoulder and the the angels going, you know, this is your friend, just pay attention to her. And the, and the devil filmmakers going, don't put the camera down. You kill yourself if you miss this moment. (laughs) And I just was like, no way. And I just turned the camera off and I just, you know, basically like carried you into the next checkpoint, which luckily wasn't very far away. Yeah. And, and I just, you know, it was so unreal. I mean, it was like, so beyond the scope of anything that any of us thought was possible out there. Um, and as women, I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised because as women, it is a, a truth we live with that sort of danger every day of our lives. Um, so it was sort of soul crushing that it was possible out there. You know, we were, we were in a bubble out there. Like we, you know, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I always, a part of my process of getting through these races is examining the reasons why I may stop and I I fully experience them in my mind before I get out there because just by understanding what the reasons for my stopping could, could be, it, it actually helps me get through it when it happens. So I imagine what it's like if I'm dehydrated. I imagine what it's like if I've got a blister and I visualise myself getting through it. So that's like my mental prep before I go to these races. And I never once thought, you know, being sexually assaulted by someone on the course was a potential. And I now look back and I'm like, how did I not think that? Like, how did I not consider that is something that is always a threat, but probably even more of a threat in Egypt? You know, there are some places on this planet that I have higher risks of this but the reality is it could happen even where I am or if I go for a run early in the morning I do have to consider my safety and you know do I use a Strava beacon so people so my husband knows where I'm running there's certain things that I do to protect myself but still allow me to do the sport that I love and when we were out doing the Thor mm-hmm. Deserts we had a big bubble over us it was us our footsteps and the people that we were sharing that experience with and that was the moment for me that like that bubble was pierced. And I'm like, oh, no, like we're still in the real world. Like we're not on our own here. Yep. I, for me too. Definitely. It was very sobering. Yeah, it, it is sobering. <laughs> but it was also to take this you know interview really low. But I also think it was that was the point of my personal transformation because I realized terrible things can happen and are going to happen in my life that I'll 
within my control but also outside of my control and the only thing that I can take ownership over is how I choose to respond to those moments and in that moment I continued on with the race even though every part of me thought this is the end for me and you know I had no idea that I said that I have no recollection that I said to you I'm out I'm out I'm out it's like a lot of that's a real blur for me now so it's um mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear it but let's go back to you because it's not about me <laughs> <laughs> I I want to understand like did you always want to be a filmmaker like what is it um what is it about filmmaking and was it something in like your earlier years uh, as a kid that you were drawn to this type of pursuit? Yeah, so I was um, in college or uni, as you would say, um, and I, um, I was studying sociology and women's studies. You know, I was 20 years old and I, was, I felt like I was basically taking in learning about all of the isms of the world, you know, sexism, racism, ageism, everything ism, and, and sort of really learning for the first time, like structural inequality, like just how basically how fucked up I felt the world was. (laughs) And I was, I felt, I felt like I was coming home from school every day, angry and I, and, and upset about the state, the state of the world. And, um, just feeling like, everything was set up to screw everyone over. And, um, and I was, you know, and I was, I was crying some nights when I came home from school, just like, so upset about about things. And I remember thinking, I, that I needed an outlet that I couldn't just take everything in, without having some way to express my feelings and to do something positive with them. So, um, and I come from, you know, a family of artists, you know, my mother is a, is an artist. Um, my aunt is a photographer. My grandmother was a dancer. Um, everyone in my family is an artist or an entrepreneur of some kind. And, um, and I remember thinking, well, nobody's made films yet. <laughs> um, so that, this that, is my <laughs> <laughs> so, so I could, so I could have a medium that nobody's tried yet. Um, but I remember just watching like, like sort of my first inkling was like, social documentary, like I could do something, I could really like, you know, affect change by making documentaries about social issues. And so I switched my major to film. And I ended up getting a degree in film. Um, And then, you know, I, they got out of school, and I sort of got sucked into the commercial world and the television world, because they paid really well. And when you're a you know, young 20 something just out of college. And as you know, Miss Lawyer, someone offers you a really big paycheck. It's appealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I made a lot of money for a lot of years and I, um, and I, you know, I, I was very driven in my early twenties, late twenties. And I, you know, I made a lot of money. I accumulated a lot of stuff. I, um, And then I got to like, I think I turned 30 and I just felt like everything that I got into this for, like, it just sort of got lost. And, you know, now I have, you know, I think I owned three houses at the time. I had just stuff and I was living with my boyfriend at the time. And I remember breaking up with him. And sell, I had, we had a three bedroom house. 
I sold the house and I bought a two bedroom apartment. And then six months later, I rented that out and moved into a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco. (laughs) And then a year after that, I got rid of that and I moved to New York and I lived in like the smallest, tiniest studio apartment um, attached to my aunt's house. That's where I was living when I met you and I was making Desert Runners. And I was like, I just didn't want any of that stuff. Like I, the stuff was so not what I was interested in and, and it started to, it felt so oppressive. And so I just kept shedding and shedding and shedding the stuff. And, and, and actually that did eventually, I mean, event the first film I made was motherland um, during that whole time of just like shedding. And then by the time I got to desert runners, I was like, yeah, like the next book, the next step is to like go sleep in a tent in the middle of the Sahara desert with nothing except freeze dried, you know, macaroni and, (laughs) and, and, and find your joy there, you know? So, um, so, I mean, that was a, that was a process, you know, but it was really like getting back to like the, the thing I had always wanted to do, which was make films about people which could help change the world I didn't realize that a full extension of the shedding that you went through and Motherland is a your first feature document documentary where you took six mothers who had within that last two-year period had lost a child and you took them to Africa to volunteer with children there and it's so much this story about grief loss um how to rebuild, but also the power of house service and and the element of contribution can actually begin to heal us and, and allow us to feel that value uh, within ourselves. And what drove you to making that as your first feature documentary? Like, how did you come up with that idea? Um, well, one of the women in Motherland was a good friend of mine, um, and she and I actually. Um, did a lot of volunteer work together. That's how we became friends. We volunteered for this one organization a lot, this women's organization. So she was a really good friend of mine. And then her son was killed in a car accident. And I had never known anyone who had lost a child before. That was like a whole new experience to me. And I remember watching her going through her grief and, um, it was just like any, unlike anything I had ever witnessed before. And I, my heart just broke for her. And, um, she, I I really didn't understand how she even got out of bed in the morning. I really didn't like, she's like my Shiro to this day. Like I, I just, it was so, I was so deeply touched by it. And, um, and then, and then during this whole time of shedding, I was actually thinking about going to Africa myself and I really wanted to do more volunteer work and I was really drawn to Africa and I, I just wanted to travel. And, um, and I started, and I've always believed that, that um, volunteering and giving and being of service is a very healing thing to do. And so I just had this day where I was, you know, thinking about going to Africa and being of service and volunteering and And then I was thinking about my friend and I remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if that could be a healing thing for her to go on a trip like this, you know? Um, And then, and then sort of back to what I was talking about earlier, the snowball effect. Like I remember calling her and being like, you know, I had this idea, like, would you be interested in a trip like this to Africa? And she like 
burst into tears and she was like, oh my God, that's exactly like what I need. I've been trying to figure out what to do next and I've been feeling so stuck and yes, let's do it. And then I was like, what if we brought other moms who'd lost children? And then what if we filmed it? And then, and the, and like same kind of deal as desert runners, like the next thing I knew, you know, I think it was four months later, we were on a plane to Africa. I think so. I think it was like, well, August to December, I'm not four or five months, but basically we were like, yeah, the next thing I knew we were like on a plane to Africa, making a movie with a film crew and six women that I had literally picked out of almost a hundred applicants for the, for the trip, for the film. So how many were in the film crew for this one? I had a producer with me and a sound person and a camera person from the States and we all flew there. And then I hired another camera person and sound person in South Africa. So we had all together, there were six, six on the, yeah. six on the crew and six women. I mean, so still quite nimble when you think of, you know, a feature film, but I mean, again, to give this context, Desert Runners had yourself and one other person. So it's the most nimblest of crew. And do you feel that you like to operate in this space where it's this, you know, small team that can do multiple roles? Like, is there something about you that likes to not have a too big operation when you're making these quite personal documentaries about the human story? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the smaller your crew, the more intimate you get. So yep. it's really, it's so complicated. I mean, I don't know that I would do desert runners the same way again today um what are you saying that you don't want to scale sand dunes to get you know something that looks like a drone (laughs) shot (laughs) no I think I just would have I think I would have brought a little more equipment and a little higher quality equipment (laughs) I mean it's pretty unbelievable what we got yeah but I I love that because I I hear a lot of people have these projects for these running films and how they want to create documentaries and they talk to me about their extensive crew and all the equipment that they need and they actually use that as an excuse of why they can't do it and I'm like well I was a part of something that literally had you know one kind of good camera and one mediocre camera and two people who just did it all and they covered like the span of 250 kilometers across four deserts you've really changed my opinion about what it takes to create an incredibly impressive um final product i i also think that the subject matter lends itself to that right so like yeah people can be watching an an adventure documentary and the camera can be shaky and it can be all over the place and that kind of adds to the like the, the the feeling of it Um, you know, if it was, you know, a film about ballet dancers, it would not work, you know? So (laughs) it's like, I, like, like uh, the rough and rugged, like camera work kind of goes with it all. Although I will say, you know, we've won a couple cinematography awards for that film. So I didn't didn't think it looked rough or rugged in the slightest. And, you know, I, for people who end up watching it after hearing this conversation, I'd love to kind of get your feedback on what you thought of the film. But for me, it doesn't look like a rough, raw adventure film. It does seem high level um, cinematic in my opinion, but I could be a little bit biased. (laughs) So I kind of, I guess I want to, yeah, that's, and, and let's say with Motherland, your first feature film, you won the audience award at South by Southwest, didn't you? I did. That's, I mean, what was that like? Cause that's, Firstly, it's one of the most impressive film festivals to be a part of, and it's definitely one that I know fits your value set as well. What is it like to 
have the audience in there say this film like resonates with us the greatest? It was incredibly moving. I mean, and I was shocked. (laughs) I was really shocked. But, you know, um, the audience award is always my favorite award to win. And, um, you know, Desert Runners, we we actually won several of them at different film festivals. And um, uh, I just love that award because it's from the audience. You know, it's from the people that you made the movie for. And it's like, you know, it's not some jury of like six people it's like the entire audience voted for you like that's so freaking cool and yeah it's so great it's so it's my favorite thing and it's such an honor what what was it like for the women um who were the subjects of the film for motherland when they discover that their film resonated with people in that way how did that make them feel oh they loved it i mean most of them well not most of them i Three of them, I believe, were there at the premiere in Austin, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, that that film was complicated because it's about a really hard subject. And for those women, it was it was hard, you know, and and, um, you know, and and because grief progresses and, and things change over time. And, you know, when when I made that film think all of the women in the film their loss was less than two years out so it was all very fresh for all of them you know now um you know we god I can't believe it's been so long 2006 so it's been 14 years so for some of them they can't even watch it like it's too painful to look back at that time in life and then you know for and for others it's just surreal because um you know they just you know the grief just grief is not something you ever heal from it's not something that ever ends it's just something that you incorporate into your life and it becomes a part of you and it becomes a part of your life and um and so um you know i think i think it's i think some of them are so happy to have been a part of it and i think for other others of them it was hard which i think you would completely imagine that to be the case it i think it would mm-hmm. be like writing a book um, when you're going through trauma and, you know, it's 15 years ago and then going back to read that book and going, oh, my life is so different now. The way I feel about those moments is now different. And I think when you watch a documentary film or you read a memoirs, you have to remind yourself that it's written by someone of their snapshot of that moment in that time. And two months down the track, they can feel different about that, um, let alone 14 years down the track. Um, and we evolve yeah. as human beings. Yeah. We're meant to think about things differently based on the influences or experiences that we have. And I think that's what makes this journey of life so interesting. We can fundamentally change significantly. And so at this point in your life, and when I first met you, you were like career gung-ho, Jen, living in New York, you know, had removed the shackles of materialism. Um, and was working on like incredible films that were winning awards all around the world. And I know that you came to a a shift in your life a couple of years after that when you started to think, you know, I, I, I think I'd like to become a mother. What was that like being in New York, not really having a partner at the time, but deciding I think I want to, you know, try and become a mum? Well, it's interesting. It kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about pushing a boulder up a hill versus going with the flow. Um, 
but you know, I got back from this year in the desert and all of a sudden I was 38 and I was like, Oh, oops, I forgot to have a kid. (laughs) I forgot to, I forgot to do all the other things that all my friends were doing in their thirties, like get married and have children. And I, and I, because I was so career focused and I was traveling and I was doing all these other things. And I mean, I was having a good old time. Like I loved my thirties every second of it. I have no complaints, but I think I, I always thought I would have a kid before I turned 40. And so I got back from, you know, a year in the desert and I was working on editing desert runners and I was like, okay, I need to, I need to date. I need to like go meet someone. (laughs) You and every other woman in New York. <laughs> uh, I know. So I remember I had this, I remember I had this summer where I like did the online dating thing for like three months. And I like, I was going out on like, you know, three or four dates a week and like going out on all these dates with all these people. And I just hated every moment of it. And I didn't like anyone. And like, And I found myself trying to make myself like people that I knew I didn't really like. And I was just like, and it was making me more and more and more depressed. And by the end of the sort of three month dating spree, I was like, I mean, talk about trying to fit like a square peg into a round hole. Like I was like, I feel like I'm trying to make something happen that is just not happening organically. And, and I don't want to ever be one of those women who's like, you know, out on a first date with somebody going, hi, nice to meet you. So um, my biological clock is ticking and I'd like to get started in about six months. Are you ready for that? Like, I was like, <laughs> ew, no, you know, nobody wants to date that girl and nobody wants to be that girl. Like I just was, I just was like, yuck, this is so yucky. And, you know, at the time I had, you know, a couple of good friends who, um, who had been married for like 20 years, the, you know, friends that you thought had the perfect marriages, the perfect life. And all of a sudden they were getting to divorces. And then I, and then I actually had another really good friend who, um, you know, perfect husband, two kids, the house, the picket fence, the whole deal, every, you know, the, the vision of everything. And one day her husband has a heart attack and dies in the middle of the night. Oh. And I just, all of the, all of these things were sort of like crescendoing and making me think. And I was like, you know, there's no such thing as a guarantee. Like, even if I met someone and thought I had the perfect relationship, I could end up a single mom anyway. Um, and you know, there's, I also had a, I have a good friend who was in her sixties who just met someone and got married and they were like the happiest of happy could be. And I was like, you can fall in love at any age, you know, you really can fall in love at any age, but you can't have a baby at any age. And that is like the truth of it, unfortunately. Um, Although now I will say technology is different than it was seven years ago. (laughs) Um, But anyway, this is like, this is seriously the theme of my life. Like, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill versus the, like going with the flow. So I basically thought, okay, what if I just start trying to get pregnant? It's probably going to take, you know, a year or two anyway. Like, you know, I have friends with who are having like fertility issues. Like this could take a while. I think in my mind, I was like, you know, this is, this is like two or three years out. So one try, no drugs, seven days later, 
I had a positive pregnancy test. So it took me exactly seven days to get pregnant. <laughs> did you, you had a donor, right? Yeah, I picked out a donor. I, 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 yeah. And I, not only did I pick out a donor, but I ordered enough for two or three tries because I was so sure it was going to take a long time. <laughs> so I had like extra sperm when it was over. <laughs> I, I didn't know that it was seven days. <laughs> oh yeah. I got, it was seven, it was one try seven days later I was pregnant and I was like, okay, well, I guess that was supposed to happen. Um, that was the opposite of pushing a boulder up a hill. <laughs> um, so I was pregnant ed- and finishing editing Desert Runners. And in fact, I remember I was eight months pregnant and I was huge and the film wasn't done yet. And I remember looking at my belly and looking at the size of my swollen ankles <laughs> and being like, I have exactly three weeks to finish this movie because I'm not going to be able to do anything after that. And so I remember locking myself in my apartment putting my ankle, putting my feet up on a chair and like editing over my belly. And I finished desert runners in like two and a half weeks locked inside my apartment and the movie was done. And I was like, and we're done. And then I had the baby. <laughs> oh my God. And then I remember that Madeline was, she was pretty young when you and we ended up going to Edinburgh to, for the premiere of desert runners. And that's yeah, where she we, was, where we kind I of, think she was oh. like six or seven months old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the timeline of this is insane. I know. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you're in New York. You obviously had nine months to kind of get around the fact that you're going to be having a child when you thought it was going to be two years down the track, which isn't dissimilar for a lot of people who are trying to have kids. What is it like to be a single working mother in New York with pretty limited family support in that city? Um, it was impossible. And it was, um, I mean, we could have a whole nother podcast on this subject, but, you know, I was not prepared for the reality of motherhood. I thought like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, strap this baby on my back and continue to travel the world and work like I've been working and, and, and the baby will just go with the flow. And, you know, I just, I, you know, I had all these I don't think I really understood um, what babies are and how they work (laughs) and how, and how being a mother alters like you, you know, like alters the way you think and, and the brain space that you have and your desires and, and, you know, um, it was, I had a very rough transition in my first couple years. Like I had to, um, it's, it was, it's so complicated because on the one hand, here is this being that I am so completely head over heels in love with and, and so thrilled is here. And then on the other hand, her presence has completely destroyed my life in every way that I can think of. It's just, it's destroyed my ability to work. It's destroyed my finances. It's destroyed my social life. It's destroyed like my sleep. It's destroyed my, you know, my moods. It's destroyed everything. And yet it's the best thing I've ever done. And so I feel like that, you know, that wrestling with all of that, I think for, you know, for first time mothers and and for me as a single mom, especially it was, 
it was really hard and I really needed help. And I had always been such an independent person that, you know, calling my parents and being like, mom and dad, I'm coming home (laughs) and I need help. And I, you know, I went and I lived, I ended up living with my parents for the first 10 months. Um, uh, and it was very humbling. I mean, I was 39. I think I turned 40 right after she was born. Um, and being at home at 40 years old, living with my parents, you know, and, and was very humbling. And, and I had to work really hard to not feel like a failure. And I had, you know, um, and, you know, in retrospect, I look back and it was like, it was like the most beautiful time. And it was so precious for my parents. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. and they have a bond with, with Madeline that will, you know, they're all so close and it's so beautiful. And, you know, and we eventually ended up moving back to California full time to be near them because I, because the bond is so precious and we never know how much time we have with our parents and I don't want to keep them apart, you know? Um, But I think that, you know, I wish that I had no, I wish that women talked more openly about, um, about all of that, because I think that when you have a baby, um, if you choose motherhood, that you're really, you're choosing something so great and so wonderful. And everybody loves to talk about that part of it, but nobody really likes to talk about what you have to give up. Um, and, and we give up a lot and especially women with thriving careers. Um, And, you know, we we give up a lot and no matter how feminist we are, no matter how, how feminist our partners or our husbands are, um, it's still the weight of it is on the women. And it's just, is that way. And I don't, um, you know, it's one of the things I'm like super interested and passionate about now is like, how do we like, how do we change that culturally? We do a lot of the giving up because we think that's the right response, let alone like societal expectation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot that women need to work on internally and also within each other to to help each other have permission to go, you know, we can still be working mothers, we can still be present um, parents, but it just, it's going to look different than the way it used to look. And that's okay. Yeah, we, we could talk about this forever because I face it too. I know you do. I know you do. And it's very, um, I mean, you do an amazing job with it that I've seen. I mean, Harry's very well traveled (laughs) and, and that's hard. I mean, that's hard because people don't, um, people don't, people can fantasize it, right? Like people can say like, Oh, that's, she's so lucky. She can travel all over and, you know, and bring her baby with her and have the best of both worlds and blah, blah, blah. and they don't see like although I did see a couple of your pictures on yes. Instagram where Harry's crying in every single picture <laughs> I share that because I don't want to romanticize what it's like right um so from from Harry being six weeks old you know I'm, I'm lucky to be a corporate presenter and you know, I can technically go back to work in the sense that I'm on stage for, you know, one and a half hours. I need to be present for a couple of hours beforehand for the tech run. So my time away physically from my child only has to be a couple of hours, but the jobs are always in other states and there's a lot of transport and flights and cars and sleeping in different beds. But I chose when Harry was six weeks old to go back to work. But I was like, no, I'm still going to be 100% present as a mum and 
you know, still doing my job and earning money for the family. And so I took Harry on every gig with me really for the first six or 10 months of his life. And, you know, it became part of my norm. And I think I was on some kind of high drugs because it it did seem manageable. But when I look back at it, I'm like, I can't believe I did what I did. And at one time, you'll Mm -hmm. even remember that I was working heaps in Melbourne and then I flew to San Francisco and I spent all with Harry. (laughs) And then I flew back to Sydney and did a keynote talk. And then the next morning I flew to India to do another gig. And I took Harry on all of that. And I mm-hmm. oh, probably now that's why I'm going through a mental breakdown. <laughs> but it's, you know, we, we make it work because we're trying to live uh, up to the expectations of all the roles that we're meant to have. And I wanted, I truly wanted Harry to be with me and I, it, it was enjoyable, but high pressure and it's definitely not a romanticized experience. You, it takes a lot of adjusting and a lot of patience and we learn a lot about ourselves, but yeah, and everyone chooses to do it differently. And I'm always conscious that not everyone has a career where they feel that they can do that or do they want to. And so the formula has to be unique to you. And I think our biggest thing is letting go of the mother guilt that we put upon ourselves. Absolutely. And also the working guilt. I mean, the career guilt. Like I think that, mm. you know, I think I think the big like myth is that you can be, that you can be 100% present as a mom and give a hundred percent to your career and give a hundred percent to, you know, your family and what, like whatever else it is that you choose and that you love and that you want to give a hundred percent to, you actually physically can't give a hundred percent to every, like the, the math just doesn't work. And so, you know, you have to let things go in every arena, you know, you have to like give yourself permission to like do a little less work and maybe be a little less driven and, and maybe that means, I mean, I mean, I made Motherland and Desert Runners three years apart, back to back. Now it's been seven years and I'm yeah. still, I'm, you know, I'm still working on a film that's taking me over five years now. Um, and it's, and it's because I'm a mom. Yeah. The goal, po- the goal post change. Yeah. And, and that's just, and that, and, and so kind you know, learning to like give myself a break around that stuff and to not you know, beat myself up about it and to also not beat myself up about, you know, when I do go off and go on a shoot and I'm gone for, you know, six or seven days and I'm leaving my kid at home with family, like, am I, am I a bad mom? Cause I'm away, you know, it's like, it's like, I have to give myself a break in all of those arenas and I have to, um, just be kind and forgiving and, and, and my ego, I had a, I got to like put my ego aside, my ego that thinks I need to be some superstar, you know, it's like, no, I don't actually, I just need to like, enjoy my family and enjoy my work. And I don't have to be, you know, I don't need to win an Academy Award. I really don't It'd be fun, but I don't need to. <laughs> yeah. Well, because what, what is the last film that you've been working on at the moment? I'm working on a couple now, actually, because I'm, um, but I've, I've been working on a film about um, Sheila E, who is a very famous Afro-Latina percussionist. Um, she was most famous in the 1980s because she because she played with Prince on the Purple Rain tour, and that was sort of the height of her fame. But she's a phenomenal, considered the best female drummer in the world. Um, so I've been working on that for almost five years, um, yeah. and then I and then I'm recently I started doing a couple little shorts. Um, just for fun, because I don't want to work on things that take that long. 
um, so I just made a, I just, I'm, I'm almost done with this short film about, um, uh, these two sisters, grandma and Ginga, they are, they are now 101 and 106. Um, and they, and they are the world's oldest internet influencers. They have over a million followers on Facebook and, um, they, their grandkids started posting videos of them that went viral and they're hysterical. Um, so I made a short film about them that's coming out soon. I've seen the, do you call it a draft? A rough cut. That's right. A rough yeah. cut. I love it. I, I'm so focused on books. I'm like, it's the draft. No, it's the rough cut. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the great. draft. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. And these two women are just, what I loved about watching that is when you flash back into, you know, um, their recollections of what life was like for them, you know, 40, 50 years ago and their observations on life. And I just, they've been, they've seen so much, you know, they've experienced so much. That wisdom, you know, to capture that I think is such an important thing to do and it's so powerful. So I I love the film and obviously it's upbeat, but it's also got this nostalgia and, you know, recollection of history that is just fantastic. I felt like I needed to capture them and I needed to capture them quick. (laughs) Oh, yeah, but they're still they're still going. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing, and I could actually have it do forever. But I know that you've got to get back to your family, your wonderful husband, Rich and Madeline. But I want to say thank you for giving me this time, and thank you for being like my part of my girl tribe over the last decade. We have travelled the planet together, but I think most importantly is we've stayed connected even when we are geographically removed from each other and have so much respect and compassion for you. And I just love that I've always been able to kind of go back into that decade and and hear a bit about your story. So thank you. Oh, ditto, ditto, ditto to everything you said. So honored to be here and um, to witness your whole journey too. And and I love being on your podcast. I love that you have a podcast now. It's about time, girl. <laughs> I, know. I know. We always say it's about time, but I'll just say, hey, I had a baby. <laughs> it takes right. time. Right, right, right. It we takes can't time. do everything at once. <laughs> COVID, COVID's given me the time to actually not be traveling to focus on the podcast. So silver linings for us in every challenge. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for touching base with me. Thanks for having me. I really loved being able to reconnect with Jen. You know, when you have a decade of a relationship with people, that's a special thing. But when you have a decade um, with people in where you've done and gone to places where you have no idea what's going to happen, where you're physically and emotionally, spiritually pushed, I just think like your relationship forms in a whole different type of way. Reality is you cut the bullshit really quickly and you get to the real stuff. And I think that's the stuff that makes a relationship sustain over time. And it doesn't even matter if you're geographically removed from each other. You know, the takeaways for me from Jen were, you know, pursuing something with ease as opposed to constantly feeling like you have to push that boulder up a hill. Definitely, um, I'm going to be tuning into that sensation internally for myself, um, particularly as we move out of the more restrictive phase of COVID-19, which we're not even close to be doing. But I think sometimes when we have so many opportunities at our disposal, we have to say to ourselves, is this something that we should be spending our time on? Are we forcing this situation to come about? 
Uh, and I think it's a good reflective exercise to go through. Next week. Next week, you'll be hearing from Jared Byrne. He is the recent winner of the Australian series of Dancing with the Stars, and this guy is incredible. Um, In fact, Mark and myself actually did our wedding dance lessons with him, and very quickly I was drawn to his athleticism, his abilities as a storyteller, and what I appreciate from this conversation with Jared is he doesn't mince words. He gets to the truth, and the truth of goodness but also the truth of challenge and I definitely have taken a lot away from my conversation with him and I really can't wait for you to hear it because we don't always hear men being vulnerable and I feel like Jared believes there's no other space but to be that so it's it's pretty insightful. Outside of that I just want to wish everyone you know the best week. Um, I think we are having good days, we're having bad days. I certainly know I'm having everything in between and it is just like an ultra. It's one step at a time without judgment, with acceptance. It will get better and we're all in this together. Thanks so much.